Hi, Rachel, and welcome to this second installment of our conversation about conversations with God. Last time we talked about conversations that were initiated by God. But that, Rachel, is not our experience as human beings. We don't have God initiate conversations with us. Our experience of discussing, having a conversation with God is really much more one-sided from our side. And that's what we call prayer. And the question is, in what way is prayer a conversation with God? And how can we look at some of the biblical examples of prayer as models for what that conversation of prayer should be about? This is a very good question. And the truth is that if we think of conversation only in verbal terms, then you're right. When we pray to God and don't hear any answering voice from the burning bush or from the cloud or from the tent of the meeting or wherever, then we don't have a conversation. But I think that all of us know from our experience of relationships with actual people in our life, a lot of conversations take place without any words being exchanged. And when we look at some of the prayers in the Hebrew Bible, what we see is that they invite God to respond in nonverbal ways, which is another way of saying that they turn the nonverbal world into an arena where God can reveal himself. And in order to explain what I mean by that, let's look together for a second at a very famous biblical prayer, a biblical prayer that became the model for the sages when they decided how we should pray as, uh, as observant Jews. Uh, in fact, a prayer that we um, go back to in the liturgy on Rosh Hashanah coming up very, very soon. And that's the prayer of Hannah, uh, a woman who had no children and prayed for a son. And her son that God gave her in response to her prayer was Shmuel Anavi, who later uh, anointed the first two kings of Israel, Shaul and later David. And that prayer appears in the very beginning of the book of, Shem, of uh, Shmuel, Samuel, um, the book of the rise of the Israelite kingdom. So interestingly, in this prayer, Hannah does several things. First of all, she goes against convention. She goes into the tent of meeting, into the Mishkan, into the tabernacle, and she prays without speaking up. She's not raising her voice. She's moving her lips without raising her voice. And we know from the response of the high priest Eli, who is present there, that this was not a common thing because he assumes that she is drunk. And he tells her off. He tells her off, why are you coming here when you're drunk? Go and uh, sleep off your hangover elsewhere. Um, and we also know that Hannah, when she prays for child with this ferocity, with this unconventional child, she goes against um, the status quo. She goes against the sense of comfort offered to her by other people. Her husband tries to soothe her, tells her, but aren't I better for you than having 10 sons? He's trying to, to get her to agree that the status quo is okay, that she can live with it, but she rejects it. She brings her will, her desire for a son into her uh, relationship with God unflinchingly, unashamedly. I don't know if you can say that. Without shame, without flinching, without reservation, without heeding either her husband or the high priest telling her that her behavior is somehow uh, 
irrational, hysterical, you know, whatever it is, uh, inappropriate. And she frames it in very interesting terms because she doesn't just say, please God, give me a child. She says, and I'm reading from the text, she made this vow. Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will look upon the suffering of your maiden, maidservant and will remember me and not forget your maidservant, and if you will grant your maidservant a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor shall ever touch his head. These words echo earlier prayers, most famously Yaakov's prayer right before he leaves uh, his family and goes to Haran, uh, to his uh, mother's brother house in Haran, to Lavan, where he will meet his wives and father, his children, etc., etc. And there too, he makes a vow where he says, if you do something for me, I will do something for you. And this is the moment, this I think is the key moment when the prayer stops being a one-sided monologue and becomes an invitation for conversation. Because what both Hannah and Yaakov are doing is they're telling God, here is your slot to mark X in. Here is your place to respond. We are turning the events that will happen now into your arena to engage with us. And you can reject what we're asking for and just not cross that slot in the, in the questionnaire or not uh, reveal yourself in this way. But we made room for you. We're demanding something for you. We made room for you. It's up to you now to step in or not. We said, last time we discussed that, we said that in a sense, when God gives a mission to a person, it's, he's reaching out and inviting that person to engage in conversation. When Hannah prays in this way and makes that conditional vow, if you do this, I do that, or if, yeah, if you do this, I do that, she reaches out and tells God, the next step, the next move is yours. And in that way, uh, she opens the door for conversation. I think um, that's a fascinating analysis. I just want to kind of unpack a few points that you made. First of all, the fact that Hana's prayer is based on Yaakov's prayer before he goes to his mother's house. That is super interesting because, you know, prayer, this kind of conversation when we invite God to answer, it's kind of frightening and intimidating because we have, we have no control about, about whether God's going to answer and we don't really know how and when and whether God is going to answer. So you know the best thing to do? The best thing to do is to take a model of prayer that we know worked and to model it. And that's exactly what Hannah does. And the reason I like that so much is because at the beginning you said that Hannah became the model of prayer. And that's, of course, right. And the idea whether you have to actually say the words or you can just move your lips. We learned from Hannah that it's okay to just move your lips. But there's an amazing passage in the Talmud. The Talmud wants to know, you know, on Rosh Hashanah, the Musaf on Rosh Hashanah is a unique prayer during the whole year. Why is it unique? Because the number of blessings in the Musaf is nine. We have no other tefillah, no other prayer the entire year, not weekdays, not holidays, not Yom Kippur, which has nine blessings. And the rabbis wonder. They want a model. It means if we're going to pray to God with nine blessings, where do we have the chutzpah to pray with to God with nine blessings? 
And the rabbis say that if you look at the prayer that Chana recites to God, God's name is mentioned nine times. And I think that's exactly your point. And that's such a beautiful point. And that is that the conversation that we want to initiate with God on Rosh Hashanah, the model for that conversation is Chana. And we, in a sense, gain a sense of security. Security is too strong a word. We have a sense of self-confidence that God's going to answer us because our prayer is based on Hannah's prayer, and Hannah's prayer is based on Jacob's prayer. And you know what? That, that type of prayer works. And I think that this really kind of identifies the difference between our first conversation and the second conversation. When God initiates the conversation, so then, you know, we have to, as human beings, um, Moshe, Yonah had to decide how they were going to respond, and we talked about that last time. When we initiate the conversation, we don't know how God's going to respond. We need to use all the tools that we can to, as you say, to invite God into our space. And it's fascinating how both how Hannah does it and how the rabbis see that we should do it. Yeah, and I think that in a sense, it's, it's, uh, what's interesting is that it's not only that we invite God to respond, we also, and I have to say, this is somewhat bold on Hannah's part, on our part, on Yaakov's part. We don't just invite response. We tell God what the response should look like. And, and I think this is a key, um, a key aspect, and that's why I uh, highlighted Hannah's irreverence, in a sense, or a revolutionary streak when she stands up and ignores her husband's advice and ignores the high priest's rebuke and just does what she wants and prays the way she wants. Because there's something irreverent and bold in telling God, yeah, 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 you're taking care of the world the way you see fit, great, but I want you to do this. This will count as a response to my prayer. Not everything else, a male child. Not, you know, giving me even more love from my husband or a good harvest this year or whatever. What I want is what will count as a positive or negative answer to my question, not something else. And I think this boldness is important because it means that we bring all of ourselves into the conversations. Last, in our last episode, we talked about bringing our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, our insecurities. All this is very important, but here we see that you also need to bring what you want, your will, your desire. And by bringing that, we turn the world itself into um, a place that God can reveal himself in. You know, we don't live in an age of revelations like uh, God speaking from a burning bush or an ocean opening up for people to cross it. This is not the kind of revelation we experience. If there is to be a revelation, we have to make it possible by defining the terms, by saying, God, do this, and we will count it as revelation. We become God's partners in making revelation even possible, in a sense. And by portraying Hana so positively, so beautifully, uh, the Hebrew Bible is giving that approach its stamp of approval. It's telling us, yes, that chutzpah to demand a response from God, accept that he might refuse you, but demand a response from God and open a channel of, of communication with him where you tell him where you want his influence to reveal itself is okay. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And again, last time we used uh, Yonah as a contrast of a conversation that doesn't happen. It's a, it's a book about 
uh, what happens when someone doesn't engage in a relationship with God, doesn't accept the invitation to engage. Uh, I think it's a valuable contrast here as well, because there is a moment where you're not praised to God. He prays to God when he is in the fish. After three days of silence in the fish, you're not praised. And God responds. You're not, when you're not praised, take me out of the, uh, when you're not praised to God and uh, clearly implies that he wants um, to get out of the fish, God tells the fish to uh, uh, deliver him to dry land. And yet, despite the fact that it's a successful case of prayer that is answered, there's something very stilted and stunted in that prayer, if you read it, and we don't have time now to read it through it carefully, but if you look at it, um, it's in the second chapter of the, the book of Jonah. It's almost the entire second chapter of the book of Jonah. In fact, Jonah doesn't speak in the present tense, and he doesn't ever say, if you do this, I will do that. He speaks about his suffering and about his deliverance as if it already happened. It's like he can't be present within the moment. He can't express what he actually wants fully. He's still withholding himself, even though he's signaling, telegraphing his willingness to do the job God asked him to do, to comply. He's still withdrawing himself from actual engagement. And it's engagement with himself, with his present circumstances, with God, with the world. He's still cut off. And when we compare that style of prayer, that kind of stilted um, disconnection between our actions and our thoughts that we see manifest in what Yonah does next, which is carry out God's mission while disagreeing with it and not expressing his disagreement in any way. Um, when we contrast that with Hana standing up so boldly, so irreverently and saying, I want, I think that we see, um, in a sense, the Hebrew Bible's portrayal of what will happen to us if we allow ourselves to engage in a willful, strong relationship with what lies beyond us, and if we don't allow ourselves to engage. And it's like a choice. Do you want this uh, to be your life or do you want that to be your life? You said before that we model our prayers on earlier prayers. Do we want to model what we want from the world, how we engage with the world, how we engage with God on Yonah? who doesn't really engage, just acts in separation from his feelings, or uh, do we want, want to model ourselves on Hana, on Yaakov, on all those people who were not afraid to say, I want something. Um, I would just conclude, I mean, that, that the, the um, comparison, the distinction between Hana and Yonah, I would say, you know, to have respectful chutzpah, is really what it means to pray to God. And that's what we learn from Chana. And I think that it's not by chance that the Haftarah, the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the high holy days, that's Chana. That we say to everybody, you need to have that respectful type of chutzpah. That's the way to pray to God. 
on Yom Kippur in the afternoon, at the last minute, we kind of say to everybody, you know, you should have been like Chana, but we recognize it's hard to have respect for chutzpah to God. And you know what? Not everybody can do it. And a lot of, a lot of us have the insecurities of Yonah, but that Yonah also is answered by God. And somehow that's a comfort to know that if we can't rise to the level of Chana, but that Yonah also is answered. So I think even the position of the two readings on the Yamim no Ra'im is kind of interesting in terms of the idea that you that you express. But that, so here we started last time with God initiating the conversations and the challenges of showing up to that conversation. And then we talk about the chutzpah, the respectful chutzpah of praying to God and very specifically telling God what we want, inviting God into our space, saying what we want and, you know, and the challenges and the recognition, and by comparing Chana to Yonah, the recognition of the fact that that's not so easy. But you know what? Prayer is not so easy. Conversations with God are not so easy. And that maybe is the lesson of the whole story. Yeah, honestly, conversations with anybody, relationships with anybody are not so easy. But uh, that's, uh, that's uh, in a sense, it makes it worthwhile. Um, I think that's right. So thank you so much. And I look forward to concluding our conversation about conversations next time with you. Thank you, Rachel.